and I'm going to ask you please to open your Bibles with me now to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and today we're going to look at the miracle of the Lord Jesus walking on the water, which immediately follows the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which our brother Dave Sullivan spoke to us about last week. And this miracle of Jesus walking on the water reminds me of the story of the young man who was eagerly awaiting his 30th birthday to arrive. Because, you see, all the time while he was growing up, he had been told over and over again that his father, on his 30th birthday, had actually walked on water. And his grandfather, on his 30th birthday, had actually walked on water. And so had his great-grandfather. So this young man was eagerly awaiting his 30th birthday to arrive so he also could walk on water. And when the big day came, he went down to the lake, jumped in a rowboat, rowed out to the middle of the lake, mustered up all of his courage, stepped out of the boat, put all his weight on the water, and immediately sunk to the bottom. Returning home, dripping wet, confused, frustrated, disappointed, he found his 90-year-old grandmother, and he said, Grandma, I don't, under, I, I don't understand. Why could my father, on his 30th birthday, walk on water? And so could my grandfather. And so could my great-grandfather. But here it is, my 30th birthday, and I can't. Because, grandson, she replied, you were born in July, and they were all born in January. Well, the water, <laughs> the water Jesus walked on was not frozen water. As a matter of fact, it was a stormy sea in the middle of the night. Jesus' miracle of walking on the water immediately follows his miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and, and in John. Only in Matthew do we have the account of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water with Jesus, although it is the same incident, the same event that Mark talks about here. Now, Jesus had spent the entire day teaching 5,000 men with women and children besides, and at the end of the day, he had fed them all with five pieces of bread and two fish. When they were all filled, both spiritually and physically, he sent the people home, sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida, which is near Capernaum at the northern end of the sea. And Jesus himself went up to the top of a nearby mountain to pray and be alone with his father. Let's begin reading the story now in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 41. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and gave thanks and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets, took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate of the loaves were five thousand men. Verse 45. Immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. 
and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. But when they, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he said to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand the miracle of the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Now, as Pastor Tim has mentioned to us several times this summer, the Gospel of Mark presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect servant with the central verse being Mark 10:45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And here in this story, we see the Lord Jesus serving and ministering to the crowd and his disciples by first feeding them spiritually with teaching, and then physically, and then interceding for his disciples in prayer, and finally encouraging them with his presence when he came to them. So Mark presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect servant. And you know, it's very interesting to step back for a moment and to see how the four Gospels present the Lord Jesus because the emphasis is different in each. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, presents the Lord Jesus as the King of the Jews. And Matthew is primarily written to a people whose hope was the restoration of the glory of the kingdom of David. Well, if you're going to present someone as being the king of the Jews, then you have to trace their ancestry or their genealogy all the way back to the very first Jew and the, nation, and the beginning of the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what Matthew does. In chapter 1, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus is traced back through David and all the way back to Abraham, and the beginning of the nation of Israel. Mark presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect servant. And servants have no genealogy. Family records of servants were not kept in biblical days. And so Mark's gospel includes no genealogy of the Lord Jesus, but begins right away with his baptism and the beginning of his earthly ministry. Luke presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect man. And the humanity of Christ is brought forth more so in Luke's gospel than the other gospels. Well, if you're going to present someone as being the perfect man, then you have to trace their genealogy back further than Abraham. You have to go all the way back to the very first man, who of course was Adam. And that's exactly what Luke does. In the third chapter... The genealogy of the Lord Jesus is traced back to David and then back to Abraham and then back before Abraham, back through Noah, back through Methuselah, back through Enoch, back through Seth, and all the way back to Adam, the very first man. And in the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus is presented as the eternal Son of God. Well, if you're going to present someone as being eternal, then you have to go back further than the first man. Further even than creation. You've got to go all the way back, all the way back till there was nothing at all but the triune God. 
And that's exactly what John does. John begins his gospel like this. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then in the next verse, we have creation. It says, all things were made by him. By who? By Jesus, that's who. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. And so when we put these four together, Matthew presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews, Mark as the perfect servant, Luke as the perfect man, and John as the eternal son of God, we begin to get a fuller picture and a more complete understanding and a greater appreciation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is absolutely unique. There is no one like him. On the one hand, he is fully, entirely, and completely God. Yes, he is the Son of God, but remember, he is also God the Son. Colossians 1 tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God and that it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell bodily. Hebrews 1 says that the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his being, and that he, Christ, is the creator and sustainer of all things. These are just a few of the verses that emphasize and explain the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, the Lord Jesus is completely, entirely, and absolutely as human as you and I. And being human, he has experienced firsthand all that you and I go through as human beings. You see, at his incarnation, in Mary's womb and in Bethlehem's manger, humanity came into perfect union with deity. And Hebrews 2 tells us that he took not on himself the nature of angels, but he took on himself the seed of Abraham and was made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And because he himself suffered while being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It is true of the Lord Jesus that on the one hand, on the one hand, he is very God of very God, and at the same time, he is very man of very man. What a wonderful Savior. What a privilege it is for you and I to know and follow the one who made all things. And what a comfort it is to know that whatever temptations or trials or storms or difficulties we face, he has faced them before and knows firsthand what we are going through. You know, back in Bible days, a lot of people believed in false gods. Today we call that Greek mythology. Well, if you believed in the god Zeus, and you one day prayed to Zeus, and you said, Zeus, today I'm feeling really, really exhausted. I'm wrung out. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Well, Zeus would say to you, well, I don't know how that feels. I'm a god. I've never been tired or hungry or exhausted. 
But when we pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm tired and hungry, he says, I also have been tired and hungry. I know how that feels. When we say, Lord, I feel alone, my friends are deserting me. He says, I know what it feels like to be alone and deserted. When we say, Lord, people don't understand me. He says, lots of people didn't understand me either. And when we're sorrowful and grieving and we pray, Lord, I just lost a loved one. He says, I've been there before. He was made like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Could God the Father have provided us with a better Savior in any way? Is there any way to improve upon the deity or the humanity of the Lord Jesus? Could you ask God for anything better than his Son? The answer is no, there is nothing better. For he has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall one day bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But notice carefully that this verse in Philippians 2 does not say that every tongue will one day confess him as Lord and Savior. Because in that day of judgment, when Christ sits on the great white judgment throne and the unsaved dead, small and great, stand before him and are judged according to their works, in that day, he will not be their Savior. He will be their Lord and their judge. My friend, if you know Christ today as Lord and Savior, then you have reason to rejoice. Your sins are blotted out and forgiven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Christ dwells in you, and all the promises of God, which are yea and amen in him, are yours. And if you don't know him today, if you've never made that decision to trust Christ, then why not do it today? Why not, in simple faith, and in the quietness of your own heart, invite him into your heart and life to forgive your sins and make you whole. I guarantee that this is a prayer that Jesus will answer without delay. For he who hears my words, Jesus said, and believes on him who sent me shall not come into condemnation or judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Now, I want to call your attention to the verse at the end of our story that says, For the disciples did not understand the miracle of the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. We read in John's Gospel that after the feeding of the 5,000, the people wanted to come and make Jesus king by force. They could only see the physical blessings that the Lord could provide. That's as far as their thinking went. Here is someone who heals us when we're sick they thought, and feeds us when we're hungry. He'll provide for all of our physical needs and surely soon will deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. And the disciples also thought that the loaves represented the fullness of the Messiah's work. 
physical blessing. Here in Mark 6, both the crowd and the disciples did not understand the spiritual work of Christ. That's why the verse says their hearts were hardened. And if Jesus had agreed to be their earthly king on those terms, well, the crowd would have been thrilled. And the disciples would have jumped for joy. And Jesus would have never been our savior. You see, he did not come to be crowned earthly king. He came to die. And the work of the Messiah went far beyond providing temporary physical needs. He would fulfill and complete the work of his father who had sent him and provide for our greatest need, which was spiritual and something we could not do for ourselves. Jesus, we read in Isaiah 53, would make his soul an offering for sin so that we might be righteous and spotless and clean before a holy God. You see, the multiplication of the loaves and the fish fall way short of the fullness of the work of Christ. And Jesus would not have people crown him king simply because he provided for their physical needs. You know, the next day, Jesus and his disciples were across the sea, and the crowd came looking for him. These same people he had fed the day before, they walked all the way around the Sea of Galilee to find him. And Jesus said to them, you seek me because yesterday you ate of the loaves and were filled, and today you're hungry again. And then he delivers the bread of life discourse. And he says, do not seek the food that is temporal, but the food that endures to eternal life. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For this is my Father's will, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness and died, but here is bread that comes down from heaven that you may eat of and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. The bread I speak of is my body, which I will give for the life of the world. And when Jesus finishes speaking, the people say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? You see, they understood it, but they did not want to accept it. They did not want that deep a level of commitment and that deep a level of relationship with Jesus. They're fine as long as he provides bread on their table and shoes on their feet, but they're not fine when he says, if any of you will be my disciple, let them deny themselves daily, take up their cross, and follow me. And that's why, a few verses later in John 6, we read, from that time on, many turned back and walked with him no more. Now, this summer in Mark, we've talked a lot about the physical miracles of Jesus, like miracles of healing and calming the sea. But the Lord did not come simply to do physical miracles. 
That was just a display of his power. That just gave authority and confirmation to his words. He came that we may know him and that we may know the Father through him and that we may have life and have it more abundantly. So how's your relationship with Jesus this week? How deep is your level of commitment to him? Are your affections truly set on things that are above and not on things here on the earth? Are you truly more interested in the spiritual rather than the physical? Is it more important to you to lay up treasure in heaven than it is here on earth? This is what being a Christ follower is all about. That we love the Lord our God with all our mind and all our strength and all our soul and that we demonstrate and show his love to others. Now let me call your attention to verse 45 that reads, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitudes away. Small thought here. Does it bother you that the Bible says he sent the multitudes away? We love to think of Jesus inviting people to come to him. Like when he says, suffer the little children or allow the little children to come unto me. Or come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here, we actually read of Jesus sending people away. Does that bother you a little? He sent them away when they were filled, both spiritually and physically, because it was time for him to be alone with his father in prayer. He even sends the disciples away across the Sea of Galilee in a boat before him while he goes up on a nearby mountain to pray. And here we see the importance that the Lord Jesus placed on the ministry of prayer. It was purposeful and intentional. Over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus setting aside time to spend time to spend with his Father in prayer, and he would allow nothing to interfere or interrupt that time. And if he, the Son of God, believed it was that important to spend time in prayer, then how much more so for you and I? George Mueller of Bristol, one of the great men of prayer and faith of the last 150 years, tried to follow our Lord's example here by setting aside the best time of each day for prayer. For him, it was the early morning. The idea here is to give God your best, like giving him the best lamb of your flock, or the first fruits of your earnings. Give him the best time of each day, not your leftovers, but the best time of each day in purposeful and intentional prayer. And watch how he begins to transform you into his likeness and works in the lives of your family members as well. Now Jesus up on the mountain praying and the disciples in the boat on the stormy sea below gives us a wonderful picture of what his followers would have to endure while he is not with them physically, but interceding for them above. You see, Jesus knew that a change was coming in the direction of his ministry. He knew that his miracles 
and his teaching and his popularity would bring him into direct conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. And so he is preparing his disciples for the storms that would lie ahead and what their lives would be like after he left them. Right now, we're in Mark 6. In Mark 15, Jesus is crucified, and then it's only a matter of days before he leaves them. And so he is preparing them and strengthening their faith for what lies ahead. How little the disciples realized as they struggled on the sea that night that all the time the eye of their Lord was upon them and his heart was concerned for them. And how easily we forget that our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, is ever looking down upon us and making continual intercession for us. The disciples in the ship that night without the personal presence of Jesus, are a picture of the storms and difficult circumstances that the church would go through and are still going through today. And Jesus coming to them, walking on the water, many believe is a picture of his second coming because one day he will physically come for us and bring an end to all storms and guide us safely to that heavenly shore. But while you and I remain in that boat, as we are today, without his physical presence, and endure the storms that arise, let us cling to Isaiah 26.3 that reads, You, Lord, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The disciples that night were not at perfect peace. They were terrified, and their minds were not stayed on the Lord. Their minds were all over the place, but mostly focused on the storm and circumstances around them. So much so that Jesus almost walked right past them without them even noticing. Little did they realize that the storm and the waves which caused them such fear and terror was merely a platform for his feet to walk on. And so he comes to them and cheers them with his presence. And you know, of all the promises Christ gave us, perhaps the most meaningful to you and I are those where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. And lo, I am with you always, Matthew 28, 20. And I will not leave you without comfort, John 14, 18. Romans 8, 34 tells us that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, even now, interceding for us. Psalms 5, 11 says, Let all who take refuge in you, O Lord, rejoice. Let them sing for joy. And Psalms 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now in closing, I'd like you to look at verse 51. It says, and he got into the boat. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. 
Do you see that? The disciples were utterly astounded. You know, it's very interesting to notice the reaction of the, Lord, of the, the, of the disciples to the Lord's miracles. In Mark 1, we read of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law and healing many others and casting out demons and healing a man with leprosy. And what is the reaction of the disciples who saw and witnessed these miracles? There isn't one, or at least it's not recorded. In Mark 3, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he also healed many others. And what is the reaction of the disciples to these miracles? There isn't one. In Mark 5, Jesus cast many demons out of a man who lived among the tombs. And he healed a woman with an issue of blood when she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And what is the reaction of the disciples? There isn't one. But when Jesus does miracles on the sea, because these men were fishermen, it hits home with tremendous impact. Here in Mark 6, after walking on the water and calming the sea, the disciples are utterly astounded. In Mark 4, when Jesus wakes up in the boat and calms the storm and says, Peace be still, the disciples exclaim, What manner of man is this? What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And in Luke 5, after the great catch of fish, Peter falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, when Jesus does miracles on the Sea of Galilee, he is meeting the disciples right where they are, in a very personal way, on their own turf, in their element, and it has a great impact on them. This is what makes their faith very real and very personal. Now, how about you? Is your faith very real and very personal to you. Can you point to a time or times in your life when God worked so powerfully that it impacts you still to this day? Christianity is a very personal faith because the Lord meets us right where we are. Chrissy and I were married in 1981. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary this summer. And I well remember the second year of our marriage, 1982, we received the wonderful news that the Lord would be blessing us with our first child. At the time, we were living in Clinton Township, New Jersey. We were renting a small cabin or a small cottage that was originally built in 1903. I, I felt like Abe Lincoln living there. And we had no money. We really wanted Chrissy to be a stay-at-home mom when the baby was born. And I was a second-year teacher working in a nearby Christian school, and my salary was exactly $9,000 a year. And we shared the good news that we were expecting with all of our friends and all of our family, but we didn't ask anybody for any money or any help except our Heavenly Father. And I well remember that in about the sixth month of her pregnancy, 
our phone began to ring. And we started to receive new and used baby furniture, new and used baby clothes. And by the time David was born, which, by the way, was exactly 28 years ago yesterday, that's why I'm thinking of this story, we had everything we needed, everything we needed, including a good supply of disposable diapers, which were just becoming popular. And I share this with you because that season in my life, those months when the Lord answered my prayers, that is very important to me. That is very powerful and very impacting to me. That was just as important to me personally as the miracle of walking on the water and calming the sea was to the disciples. You know, it's wonderful to hear how the Lord is working on the other side of the world through missionaries. But it's another thing when the Lord answers your prayers personally and meets you right where you are. And I would just like to close this morning by giving God the praise and sharing a couple verses from 1 Peter chapter 1 where the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your presence with us. Lord, thank you for all you are and all you mean to us. And thank you for this time together, Lord. Thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray, Father, that it would impact our lives in powerful ways. Draw us near unto yourself, Lord. Help us to rely on you, to lean on you, to exercise faith in you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would work in mighty and powerful ways here in the lives of everyone present this morning. Father, thank you so much again. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.